It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, you can always email the programme 24-7 Cork Today at c103.ie. As we've been hearing with Barry on our news all morning, Gardy in McCroom are awaiting the results of a post-mortem examination today. This was after a man was found dead in his home in uh, McCroom town yesterday afternoon. Mairead Tuig, our news reporter, uh, joins me uh, with more on this story. Good morning to you, Mairead. Good morning, Patricia. And, and you're very welcome to the programme. OK, we now know that the man has been named locally as a 61-year-old uh, Michael Foley. Can you start by outlining how was Michael Foley's body discovered yesterday? Yeah, so the body of Michael Foley, is 61 years of age, was found at his home at Anvil in Barrett's Place, which is near the centre of McCroom Town. And it was about 1pm yesterday afternoon and he was f- discovered by a home help. Now, uh, we understand that Mr Foley, known locally as Mikey Foley, that he lived alone. And what we understand is that he was found with extensive head injuries in the kitchen area of the four-room chalet. Now, he lived in sheltered accommodation so this uh, four-room chalet was sheltered accommodation, as I say, at Anvil in Barrett's Place. Now, Gardier is said to be treating um, his death as suspicious. What the Garda press officer is saying is that the results of a post-mortem, which is expected to take place today, is set to determine the course of the Garda investigation. But it is understood that Gardaí do believe that foul play was a factor here in Mr Foley's death. Now, the assistant state pathologist, Dr Margaret Bolster, uh, arrived at the scene in McCroom at around 7pm last evening and carried out a preliminary examination of the body. And then Mr Foley's remains were taken to the mortuary at Cork University Hospital and at Dr Bolster is set to carry out a full post-mortem today. And what we're told is that this, the results of this post-mortem, usually the results aren't released for operational reasons, but what they will do is they will guide the Gardaí and uh, it will determine the course of that Gardaí investigation. So at the moment it's just been treated uh, obviously as a suspicious death pending the outcome of the post-mortem. There must have been a dreadful shock for the home care worker to have uh, discovered him. 
Absolutely, yeah. Um, I was watching, I think it was Virgin Media News last night with Paul Byrne and, you know, just getting a sense from, from the town of how shocking this was and to uh, discover Mr Foley uh, like that. And, you know, Swiss Gardaí have been carrying out some initial door-to-door inquiries and they've been suggesting that Mr Foley was last seen alive sometime on Saturday. Now, Gardaí are looking at the likes of phone records to see when he was last in contact with people. You know, they're, they're liaising with the post office in the area, you know, see when he last collected his social welfare payments and, you know, checking in with banks and things like that. And they are looking for people who do have any information to come forward. There's an incident room has been set up at McCroom Guard, the station and uh, investigating guard. They are appealing to anyone. You know, if you may have seen any suspicious activity in Anvil or Bard's place to get in touch or, you know, you might have dash cam footage if you were driving in the area just to check that. And, you know, it could be a thing that you might think it's insignificant, but it could uh, mean a lot in this investigation. Yeah. And what we do understand, you know, is that he'd suffered extensive head injuries. So going back on your point, you know, about discovering someone, uh, it must have been an absolutely massive shock yeah. um, for this home help. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. and I know uh, a neighbour uh, seemingly had, be- had become, was worried as well because uh, I think the neighbour hadn't seen him in a couple of days. So it's the last known sightings are going to be really, really important uh, to Angar the Giacona. And, and, you know, the fact that this is in sheltered accommodation. It's very unusual that you, you're reporting on a story like this. We normally, you know, yes, people can pass away in sheltered accommodation, but we don't expect to find somebody with extensive uh, head injuries. You said that there, it's in the centre of the town. I'm assuming there would be a lot of CCTVs in that area so the Gardaí can go to CCTV footage. They are. They're looking at a CCTV footage, you know, um, although they said, you know, that he did live alone. We understand that he did frequently invite people that, you know, he met in the town to join him at home. So they are going looking at CCTV footage and, um, you know, they are anxious to speak to anyone who was, as I said, driving in the area. And, you know, the local super value and the Castle Hotel car parks, you know, that they may have dash cam footage uh, if they were using those car parks. Um, and that they may make this available to Gardaí. As I say, the guards have set up that incident room at McCroom Garda Station. Anyone that does have information, and even in the Garda press release, you know, they said anyone that can assist Gardaí with the investigation, you can contact McCroom Garda Station. It's on 026 20590 but you can also go to the Garda Confidential Line, that's 1-800-666-111 or in fact you can go to any Garda station so you don't necessarily have to go to McCroom, you can go to the Confidential Line be treated in the strictest of confidence or any Garda station so if you do have any information uh, the Garda would really appreciate it as they they are in uh, doing this investigation yeah. and as I say once they do have the results of the post-mortem it is going to steer them in a direct to um, to see where they'll go next. Yeah, and interesting when you say, you know, it might be insignificant uh, to somebody if they, they, they think they saw something or they have something on dash cam uh, footage. It's often those small little pieces of what appear insignificant can be the last piece of the jigsaw or a part of the jigsaw as the Gardaí are doing their investigation. Now, what, what do we know about Michael Foley? I know he was a, a father of four and, and this is the second tragedy, isn't it, to hit this family? It really is. It sadly is. So Mr Foley's uh, brother, Timmy, was stabbed to death in McCroom in 2018. Uh, so Timmy Foley, he was 44 and he was stabbed to death at his home at Dan Corkery Place in McCroom. 
Croom and that happened on the 8th of October in 2018. Now, Timmy Foley's wife, Rita O'Driscoll from Bandon, was later convicted and sentenced to uh, life in prison for her husband's murder. And it happened less than 500 metres from where uh, Mickey Foley or Michael Foley was found uh, yesterday. Now, he is predeceased by his daughter, Annette, and is survived by his three daughters, Caroline, Kate and Shelley, as well as his sisters, Mary and Anne. Now, looking in the Irish Times, Barry Roach is a piece there where uh, he actually spoke and met Anne at the scene yesterday and uh, she and her sister were laying a floral tribute by the Garda Cordon in McCroom yesterday and she said, you know, that they're all just shocked. She said he used to be up and down to her in the city and she said she spoke to him on Thursday and said he was in good form uh, while Mary, um, another sister, said, you know, explained that McCroom had a, a sad association for obvious reasons there for the Foley family but she said that uh, Michael seemed content to live in the town and you know she said she asked him uh, how did he live in McCroom after what had happened to Timmy and uh, he said that he'd have known most of the people Timmy knew in McCroom and said that sometimes you know it draws a bit of comfort to him mm. uh, she said he was happy in McCroom. Yeah, it's really really sad uh, on the family and for, for the siblings particularly to be losing their uh, second brother. Okay so we will await uh, the post-mortem examination are you expecting to hear anything today Mairead um, or will it be a few days? It could be later today. As okay. they say, you know, we won't get the actual results of the post-mortem, but what we will get is an update from Gardaí, whether they move forward, um, you know, in, in whichever direction they will move forward with, they will get the results of the post-mortem. We're uncertain as to what time today that, okay. that post-mortem will take place. Okay. But we do know it will be today at Cork University And Hospital. just before I let you go, another um, tragic story in, involving a murder of another, um, or, or the murder of a Cork a man and this of course was uh, Kieran Quilligan whose skeletal remains was found uh, just a little over a week ago two men before the courts yesterday charged with his murder there was, yes. The two men um, appeared uh, before Cork District Court charged with the murder of 47-year-old Kieran Quilligan. And as you said there, Patricia, his remains were found on the main Middleton to Whitegate Road in East Cork on the 29th of January. Now, that was Monday of last week. So, uh, Detective Guy the Brian Barron gave evidence of arrest charge and caution of Niall Long. Now, Mr Long uh, is charged that on a date unknown, he's 31 years of age, and is charged that on a date unknown between the 1st of September last year and the 29th of January this year that he did murder Kieran Quilligan uh, contrary to common law in a place unknown to the state. Now Mr Long has an address at St Michael's Close in Mahan in Cork City and the court heard you know he made no reply when the charges put him under caution and he'd been arrested at his home on the 5th of February. Now uh, the the uh, application of the state was for a week remand in custody for the DPP directions. But Sergeant Pat Lyons uh, told the court, excuse me, that he didn't expect directions in the case to be available when Mr Long appears again next week um, on the 13th of February. Now, another man uh, was also appeared before the court and uh, Detective Garda Anne O'Sullivan in this case gave evidence of arrest, charge and caution of Mr Luke Taylor, who's facing the same charge as his co-accused. And uh, Detective Garda O'Sullivan and said that the 26-year-old Luke Taylor said that he didn't murder no one. That was the reply he made when the charge was put to him under caution. Now, Mr Taylor... um 
he's got of no fixed address but formerly uh, resided in Cherry Lawn in Black Rock in Cork. Now he will appear by video link from prison when he's next before the court um, which will be next week the 13th of February so it was before Judge Mary Dorgan yesterday at Cork District Court and since that the court appearance um, the funeral details for uh, Mr Quilligan who's actually Kieran Quilligan O'Flynn um, it, his funeral is going to take place tomorrow in uh, the church in Toker, the Church of the Way of the Cross in Toker, and uh, followed by a cremation at the Island Crematorium. As I say, there are two men aged 26 and 31 appearing before Cork District Court yesterday morning, charged with the murder of uh, Mr Quilligan O'Flynn, contrary yes, to t- common law. Tough time, tough time for Kieran Quilligan's uh, family for sure. Okay, listen, Marage, thank you for that, and thanks for joining thank us you, on Patricia. the programme. Good morning to you. That is our news reporter, uh, Marage Tuig. Just uh, spotted a WhatsApp that's come in from a lady who had contacted us before Christmas. It was the run-up to Christmas and we were talking about people getting into the Christmas spirit. Not everybody uh, looks forward to Christmas and there can be a variety of reasons why people don't like uh, Christmas. And we were talking about bereavement and how, you know, loss at Christmas can be even more acute. And this lady had sent a very honest and open email that she sent us and she explained that she was writing it while sitting in Marymount Hospice beside the bed of her wonderful partner who had uh, terminal cancer and she was talking about the fact it was the first anniversary of her father's passing so obviously she really wasn't looking forward to Christmas and uh, she was also you know worried financially with there was financial costs uh, going on and it was just an utter utterly heartbreaking uh, email and I remember I read it out and people were wishing her all the best and saying that they'd keep her and her partner in our thoughts and prayers and you know hoping that everything would go okay for her well she's just been back on uh, to say that uh, her lovely partner who she describes as the love of my life passed away last week and she said I am shattered God help her God help her tough road uh, ahead so please you know when we moan and groan about things and we can be given out about the weather and we can be given out about this and that and the stupidest of things is uh, people who are just dealing very, very heavy blows and trying to carry on uh, with their lives. So we'll just remember that lady. We will keep her in our thoughts and uh, in our prayers. For people in the Mill Street area, the Gardaí have been on to say that the road between Carriganima and Mill Street it's from the bridge at Carriganima is going to be closed today just for a very short period of time and a very specific time. It's going to be closed between two and half past two today. So please avoid that area that's the grid, the bridge at Carriganima on the road between Carriganima and Mill Street. Two to half two today. Uh, you will not be able to get access there. 0818103103. Now, according to a survey that we mentioned and spoke about yesterday, more than two out of three GPs in rural Ireland are not taking on new patients and some have a two-week wait for a non-urgent appointment. To talk about what is going on, I'm joined by Dr Martin Daly. Now, Martin Daly is former president of the Irish Medical Organisation, but he he also happens to be a GP in rural Galway. Good morning to you, Martin. Hello, Patricia. How you're, are you? I'm very well and you're welcome to the programme. Now, we currently have more than 4,000 registered GPs in this country, but I'm told a quarter of them are over 60, with many of them due to retire in the coming years. How concerned are you about the future of GP practices? Yeah, I'm very concerned, Patricia. And uh, it's a bit more stark than that, uh, for the contract holders for the general medical services scheme, 
Uh, it's about a third of GPs will be retiring over the next five years. So that's a much more stark uh, piece of data. And so it begs the question, how have we come to this pass? Well, one of the big issues has been uh, the increase in population from 1999 until now. It's about 1.2 million increase in population. We haven't had the same commensurate increase in the number of G- whole-time GPs. And there are a number of reasons for that. One uh, was uh, the uh, we weren't training enough GPs in the early noughties. Another thing was there was supposed to be funding coming to primary care strategy nearly 20 years ago uh, for general practice and primary care. None of that funding came. And we had the financial crisis where uh, general practice was essentially defunded. Not only did funding stand still, uh, funding up to one third of the of, of the funding was taken away from general practice. Now, in fairness to the HSE and the department in the last three, four years, funding has come back to general practice, but there was a complete loss of confidence in the general practice community. And so people were laid off, no new doctors were taken on, GPs restricted the amount of work they would do and let staff go. So in a sense, what we had is the capacity to provide additional services for more people uh, was lost. And, and we're essentially it's a lost decade and we're trying to play catch, catch up. up now. It's Yeah, you outline it. It's almost like a, a perfect storm. And yet, can you understand younger doctors who say, they, you know, they put more value on work-life balance and they want to guard against burnout and they see the work that's done by GPs, particularly in rural areas. They see, you know, they, they say that doesn't fit with their work-life balance. Oh, 100%. Uh, younger GPs have a different view to practice. Uh, the average working week for GP my generation, I have no problem saying this, I'm 60 now, uh, was 60 to 70 hours a week. Uh, and uh, and and that, that was the reality of practice. And also we have a situation, especially in rural areas, uh, a dearth of locum. So you give a contract to a doctor to go down into a rural area and they have no prospect of taking holidays, no prospect if it's a younger female GP of getting maternity leave or younger male GP, paternity leave, sick leave, becomes the responsibility of that GP, even though they can't get cover. And of course, educational leave in order to stay up to date for the medical council uh, requirements. So it, 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 the younger GPs are absolutely right. They have an expectation that they will have, uh, whilst working a very responsible and quite stressful job at times, uh, that they will have enough time off for their own personal, professional and family uh, development. So. I, I, I understand that completely. And that's why it can't be one for one. The expectation is that one older GP retires, one younger GP comes in. Well, for a number of reasons, that, that formula doesn't work because the younger GP, in fairness, has a different expectation of that work-life balance. But in fairness to them also, the type of services that GPs are required now to provide are much more complex than they were 20, 30 years no, ago. That's a, good, a, a point. lot of chronic illness care is being delivered in uh, the community. And so we need not just more GPs, but we need more support staff, more practice nurses, more administrative staff and uh, more receptionists in order to provide the, the the breadth and depth of care that the government expects us under Slauncher Care to provide. But uh, but on a positive note, I was reading that um, 1, 000, there was 1,300 applications for 350 GP training posts uh, this year. I mean, that's showing a renewed interest in medical graduates wanting to be GPs? Yes, there's no doubt about it. It's a very good training uh, over four years. Uh, it's a very good specialist uh, 
uh, training in what I would say general medicine of paediatrics and adult and uh, obstetrics and gynecology. So it's a very, very good training and uh, the places are in demand. And in fairness, again, to the department, the HSE and the Irish College of General Practitioners, training places have uh, have increased. So we now have 360 places a year for young GPs to come into. But it takes four years to train and you've got to get those people through. So what you have to do is, and in our own local scheme in the Western GP training scheme, I'm a GP trainer as well, we've done a survey was done by one of our assistant directors, Dr. Aaron Brennan of Oxpop, and the vast majority of younger GPs want to stay in the country Great. and want to practice in full-time practice. But then we need to look at the reasons why they don't want to set up in practice, why they can't go to rural areas. It's not enough to say that here's a general medical services card, a medical card a contract. You go down there and you just look after everything on your own. We've got to look at a, a situation where someone is down in southwest Kerry or in West Galway or in West Cork where uh, they won't go to. We've got to ask the questions, why won't they go there? They won't go there because they can't take basic holidays, can't get maternity leave, can't get paternity leave, can't take sick leave if they unfortunately become ill as they're human beings and can't take education leave. So that's not attractive. So we really do need to invert the formula and we need to see what what can we do to recruit and retain GPs in those areas. And that may well be uh, employing two doctors instead of one so that there's a seamless service to the patients and the citizens in those areas and also allowing the doctor time off because the worst thing a patient can have is a burnt out oh, doctor. 100%. 100%. What, what about, uh, Martin, what about retired doctors? Could they be encouraged to do um, loc- more locum work? Well, firstly, there are fairly onerous requirements in terms of maintaining themselves on the medical council register and they insurance is quite high but in addition a lot of those GPs have spent 40 years of their life working 60 70 80 90 hours a week they're, they're not really that interested in they coming want back they deserve their, they deserve their yeah. retirement they, yeah yes. they, they, they certainly yeah. they and certainly we shouldn't do. be relying we shouldn't be relying on people who've already given of themselves and given a good service over the years we shouldn't be relying the system should be relying on the retirement age for GPs from the medical card scheme is 72. Wow. Uh, so, you know, wow. we shouldn't be relying on, on people who, who are 74, 75, 76 years of age. Coming in uh, and doing locum work. I was, I was yeah. looking at figures from, from your organisation, Irish Medical Organisation, from uh, 2022 with the last ones I could find. And they were saying 442 Irish doctors were issued with temporary work visas. That was just for Australia. Others went to other countries. I know Canada uh, was mentioned. Have young doctors always gone abroad? Has that always happened? Well, uh, previously in other generations, young doctors went abroad because of the dearth of uh, opportunities here. Uh, There was a very uh, restricted opportunity system here in terms of both hospital and general practice uh, uh, training and also in posts that were here. But we now have six or seven hundred consultant posts vacant in hospital sector and we have a demand for more GPs. So... The reason uh, younger GPs go abroad, part of it is a rite of passage. There is uh, to go to Australia and work for a year or two and gain experience. And the vast majority of those younger GPs will come back to our jurisdiction. But there is certainly a brain drain at, at a different level where we have fully qualified GPs and uh, hospital specialists who uh, go abroad for further training uh, to places like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and uh, and the United States. 
less so to the UK now. And um, they're not coming back because, and I, I spoke to one of a consultant, uh, Anisus from Leeds, uh, who had been enticed to come back to a post uh, in the west of Ireland. And whilst he would actually do better contractually here financially, uh, his the, the culture of on-call, uh, the infrastructure that would support him giving a service to patients is not as well developed as it is, say, for example, in the NHS in, in the UK. So it's not simply about money. It's also about culture and it, it, about encouraging doctors to come back, to show that they're valued uh, and and to look at the reasons why they uh, aren't coming back to set up a practice here. Okay. So we need to find the, those reasons. And as I say, invert the formula. Look at the things that will keep, will re- attract and, and retain people in post. And it, it, the old formulas don't work anymore. OK, Martin in West Cork wants to know, do, do the local pharmacies have a role to play? Could they do more to ease some of the burden on GPs? Well, pharmacies already do that, and we work in collaboration with pharmacies all over the country. Uh, and yes, there might be some uh, role for expanded services, but at the end of the day, citizens, you know, they're, they're the very defined roles, a pharmacist's role and a doctor's role. And at the end of the day, citizens who want to see a doctor to be examined and assessed and get a diagnosis and have appropriate treatment at the appropriate site, that's a doctor's role. And citizens are entitled to have access to medical services provided by a doctor. Okay, and then we we hear of, I think it was 50 GPs have come from South Africa um, and are, are, are working with uh, local GP, are working with GP practices all over the country. Will we end up seeing more doctors, more GPs coming from overseas if, if we don't get a handle on the current problem? Well, firstly, there are onerous requirements in terms of uh, non-EU doctors and EU doctors. So there are different rules in terms of the ability to work here. Now, there is reciprocation between, it was a historical reciprocation between South Africa and Ireland. It goes back to pre-independence days uh, and Australia and Ireland and uh, New Zealand and Ireland. So there are is reciprocation there that's historical. And our South African colleagues who come here who are excellent doctors who uh, support and provide a lot of service to out-of-hour services, and some of them have gone into practice uh, very welcome because we need those doctors, but we shouldn't be relying on doctors from third jurisdictions to come. We are training enough doctors. We are training enough GPs. We need that investment has been made by the Irish state, and it's a, it's an expensive investment if it's going to be lost uh, to other jurisdictions. Yeah. We need to find ways of keeping the doctors, the young uh, uh, Irish trained doctors, they may not be Irish, but Irish trained doctors who the state has invested large amounts of money in, we need to find ways of keeping them in, uh, uh, attracting them into the system. And any sense that we can coerce them to stay is wrong. We need to have a system that's attractive to young GPs, young doctors to stay in, in this country. OK, well said. OK, Martin, we leave it there. Thank you for that and I appreciate you taking time out to talk to us. Thanks very Good much. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Dr Martin uh, Daly who is runs a GP practice in uh, Galway, former president of the Irish Medical Organisation. Somebody disagrees uh, with what Martin is saying and points the finger of blame at the government. The government 
are wrong. If we give all of our GPs a proper wage, they wouldn't be going to other countries for better money. It's the same with the nurses. I know, for example, of two nurses from the town where I live, they're going away this year and they both publicly stated they're going away for better money. It is the government that are wrong. Environmental organisation, Friends of the Earth, who Oshin is with, uh, say Dublin should follow Paris and introduce higher parking charges for SUVs. This is to dissuade motorists from buying increasingly large vehicles which are ill-suited for city drivers. Uh, is it something that could also be considered for other cities, including us here in Cork? Delighted to say Oshin joins me. Good morning, Oshin. And morning, apologies dear. there for, for the mix-up. <laughs> now, Parisians voted in favour of tripling parking charges for large SUVs. It's going to go up to €18 an hour. Can you explain why are these large vehicles just not suitable for city driving in Ireland? Well, I don't know what it's like in Cork, but I know just myself from driving in Dublin. I I cycle when I can, but I also drive. I've kids around activities and so on. It's getting increasingly difficult to move because our cars are outgrowing our streets and they're outgrowing our parking spaces, like in supermarkets and elsewhere. So it's actually just getting a lot of... Streets that are designed for two-way traffic, but when there's par- cars parked, the cars can no longer pass each other. And there was a report recently from a, 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 a think tank called Transport and Environment in Brussels which shows that over the last 10 years, cars have been growing an average of, of one cent every two years. And the, the average size of new cars has been growing a cent every two years. And obviously, if that goes on for a decade or two, what, what you get, what we have now, then it's, you know, it's not just congestion in terms of the number of cars, it's literally that they can't fit in the streets and in the parking spaces. Uh, so we need to do something, not just from a, uh, an environmental point of view, because obviously there is more pollution from these heavier, from these bigger cars, even, and we're going electric ones shortly, but there's more pollution. They are also more dangerous for other road users. For, uh, like they're more dangerous, they take up more space, but actually if you're hit by one, because if they're higher up, you're more likely to be injured or, or, or killed than in other cars. So you know, the people, in each individual person buying that car may feel more safe and more, more secure, but actually overall for the rest of us, it is not working anymore. And, there, and you're seeing more and more cities take, take, trying to get to grips with this. And Paris, and interestingly, by way of referendum, uh, uh, 55% as you said, voted for, for the tripling of parking charges. So there's a couple, we're going to have to look at that for Ireland and uh, at Dublin. We've argued for years that there should be congestion charges on the canals in Dublin uh, and, and we should look more generally nationally at probably moving the taxation from just from emissions, which it is now, to emissions and weight. So that we are taking a weight or size, but that probably weight is easier to, to kind of to, to do by. So that you are discouraging uh, um, people buying when you're buying a new car. You're, like you only buy a car as big as weighty as you need, and not don't automatically. Yeah, go and and talking of buying, um, I I was looking at figures uh, yesterday. Uh, the latest ones I could get was 2002, and I was surprised to read that two out of three cars sold in Ireland were SUVs and were 13 percent higher our purchases of SUVs than the EU average. And it, yes. it, is it as you touched on there, do people buy them because they think they're safer vehicles? Yes, so, so, so I don't know why it happens more in Ireland than elsewhere it, but, but you're correct, it is it's, uh, and it's, we're one of the countries with the highest market share for SUVs now and I know because the debate has done the radio people from SIMI and the AA there's some debate about what the definition of, a, of, of an SUV is technically but basically we're talking about bigger cars one way or the other and we seem to be more inclined to buy those than, than, other, than other countries um, so I, why that is but I certainly, why it is in Ireland I don't know but I think more generally it is that you know, there's this thing called the, you know, the tragedy of the commons so for each individual person it seems to make sense but for uh, but for the common good for everybody as a whole 
it, it doesn't make sense. And we seem to have fallen uh, fallen into that trap here in Ireland when it comes to larger cars. Um, and and it's hard, you know, people people it's hard to get some people to change now. But we do know that the the that that when we changed the VRT in particular the the, the uh, registration tax back in two thousand and nine, it was a big switch from petrol to diesel when we switched uh, to the, that that tax to be by emission. So if we switch it now. You know, with a bit of warning to be to be to emissions and weight or size, then it's very likely we can affect uh, pe- people's decisions. We can at least encourage people to consider the size and weight when they buy their next car. Uh, okay, I know good. I know the society of the of the Irish motor industry on those you know the two out of three cars that were bought were SUVs. They do point out that eighteen percent of them were electric in two thousand and two. I mean, yeah. Yes, and here's the question we need to know for sure. Are they hybrid or are they all electric? Because, uh, and there's two dimensions to this. So basically, hybrids were, were, a great, were a good stepping stone. But now, like, if you're changing, and I'm not if you're changing your car, I'm conscious lots of people, uh, you know, mostly buy second-hand cars, myself included, non-new cars. And we need to develop the, the second-hand market for, uh, for electric vehicles. But basically, if you are in the lucky position of being able to buy a new car, it, if, you can, if you can avoid it at all, don't buy a hybrid now. Go all the way to electric because that is the future. We're going to electrify everything and we're going to have renewable electricity, clean Irish electricity, and, and that's the way to go. But again, only buy a car as big as you need. Don't go automatically because there's this, there's this trap of, I think the companies are doing it because they think, oh, well, if we do a large hybrid SUV electric, people, people will kind of, it should be an easier move for people, but it's a bit of a dead end. It's not the future. So we really need to encourage people not to go hybrid and to, and to buy electric vehicles. Yes, if you can afford one and when you can afford one, but only as big as you need. Did Dublin ever look at higher parking charges for larger cars? Well, I, I don't think there's been a specific uh, proposal on that yet, but there, I, there is interesting, you know, when in Paris, there was a, there was a, a report in the, in the media in the last few days that uh, they, they've analysed the, um, uh, the, the public submissions to, on all the ideas there are for more pedestrianisation and civic plazas in Dublin, and it was overwhelmingly positive. You know, the car park owners in the city centre are against it and, and a couple of other businesses, but the, the vast majority of the public are, 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 are up for the idea of basically opening the streets more to cyclists and walkers and pedestrians and, 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 and civic space and public life and, yeah, and making cars go round the city centre rather than through it. So whether, whether it would be interesting to see if we had, I'm not sure if there's been any polling on, on a congestion charge or whether we could get a vote. I mean, I think the other part of this is, you know, Limerick's going to get its directly elected mayor this year. I think we need to revisit that question for Dublin and for Cork. Because yeah, because it's a mayor would make that decision. Yeah, and it's yeah. A, mayor, a mayor compared to a minister for transport or a council tends to kind of take those bigger strategic decisions. We know, like in London, people didn't like the idea of the congestion charge when it started, but actually it's very popular now because it has made the city centre more yeah. livable. So yeah. we probably need to look at the idea of an elected mayor for Cork and for Dublin. OK, and Amanda thinks uh, it is a great suggestion. She lives in a rural area. She said when two SUVs are coming against each other, the whole road can get blocked. Our roads were never designed for such large vehicles, which is the exact same point that you made. And just very finally, um, uh, Oshin, I was reading in the papers this morning that Irish MEPs have reacted with concern over the latest proposals to make Europe the first carbon neutral continent. They say the 2040 climate targets are overly reliant on unproven technologies, too soft on agriculture and will pose an enormous challenge for Ireland. Your views, please. 
Well, the last part is that, that, that the target for 2040 is going to be challenging for sure because, because it is, you know, we are embarking or we have embarked on a transformation of the kind that we haven't really seen in, 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 in our lifetimes and it's equivalent to the Industrial Revolution or I suppose equivalent to the Information Revolution of the last. So we've seen that. We've seen how new technologies can change our lives. But now we need to basically, uh, you know, electrify everything and, and decarbonize, depollute our electricity uh, and we need to tackle the agricultural emissions. And, you know, we're all knowing that this idea of getting to net zero, to near zero emissions in 2050, most people know that the target for Europe and for Ireland is 50% by 2030. It hasn't been a 2040 target before now. And, there, and yesterday, the discussion began about what that should be. But the science is already out there from the from European Scientific Advisory Body, and, and the Commission came out and said, yes, the science is, you know, is correct, and therefore we need to be thinking about getting to 90% emissions reductions by 2040. And that is only 17 years away. You know, that's, that's hugely ambitious, Oshin. We've had more years this century than that already, if you know what I mean. If, yeah. you, if you remember the millennium, uh, yeah. uh, uh, it's, about, it's about getting to 90% less emissions in less than that time. So it's utterly yeah. uh, challenging and transformative. But the alternative is increasing climate chaos, as we're seeing around the world. So, uh, and this is in line with what other, other countries will be thinking about. It. Just the European Commission is starting the debate now. It'll take a few years for the decisions to be made. So it's okay. the beginning of a new debate. But the debates are starting. Listen, Oshin, we leave it there. Thank you for that, and thanks for joining Thank us. You. Good morning yes. to you. That is uh, Oshin Coughlin of Friends of the Earth. We're discussing SUVs in the last hour and the fact that Parisians have voted to triple parking charges for anyone driving an SUV into the centre of. Uh, Paris. Some of your thoughts on uh, that. Hi Patricia, I heard you talking about this proposal to increase parking charges for SUVs. I wonder if that includes me. I drive a Hyundai Santa Fe. Is that deemed an SUV? Which I need to carry out my work as a farmer. I travel to Cork every six weeks now, but I was going every day for ongoing cancer treatment. At the time when I was going every day, I had to pay three euro an hour or part their hour just to park for my treatment and then maybe 300 euro for the procedure. I can say for myself that I can park within the lines of any available space I'm lucky enough to find and then find lots of vehicles, not SUVs might I say, who are outside of the lines, some taping up a space and a half. I travel 50 kilometres each way, no bus service would suit times and it would be impractical for me to use a taxi as I never know how long I'm going to be in the clinic for my treatment. Do you propose to put my treatment beyond my affordability by charging me 80 euro for parking? No I don't in any way think you would fall into the category of what we were talking about, what Parisians have done. And it's initially the, the discussion this morning was about the possibility of doing it uh, in uh, Dublin. But the one reason it could never be introduced around the country is because we don't have the public transport. I mean, if you think about a city like Paris, they have a fantastic metro and uh, they have buses uh, as well as a slew of uh, taxis and they have Uber. Can I mention the dirty word of Uber? Uh, so they've lots of opportunities for people to leave their SUV at home if they need to go into the centre of uh, Paris and that's the only way it will work as people of the alternatives. I mean you're living in a rural area, you haven't a chance of, it just happens to be that that's the, the car that you drive and someone else is, so no I'm um, I'm not in any way saying that your parking charges should be tripled but I think an explanation because the one thing Oshin was saying is, is to try to deter people from buying uh, SUVs but somebody I think has come up with a, a really g- genuine reason as to why people buy SUVs and I think it would probably fall into the same character uh, category is that gentleman who has the Hyundai Santa Fe. Uh, this sister says, hi Patricia, listening to your programme in relation to SUVs, I feel a lot of people have purchased a lot of these 
larger cars because they're stronger as the roads in rural Ireland are just so bad. Cars are not able to withstand the road conditions. I personally work in the community and I changed to an SUV for that very reason as I was broke from changing uh, shock absorbers and getting uh, tyres realigned uh, etc because of the conditions of our roads and I think you're right I do think uh, and I did make that point to uh, to Oshin when I was looking at, at the figures I just didn't realise how many SUVs those figures from uh, 2022 showing two out of every three new cars purchased were SUVs and I do think people uh, he accepts that people drive them because they feel they're safer because they're higher up on the road but but I think people drive them there's a, a comfort thing uh, and also if you're driving in a lot of back roads but then as somebody pointed out Amanda wasn't one of our listeners what I was talking to Oshin contacted us and say she lives in a rural area and it's a nightmare when two of these large SUVs come against each other in a very rural area somebody's trying to pull in and they can't pull in they can block up the whole road so I, I don't know what the happy medium on this is now we have uh, we are conducting an Instapole at the moment on the C103 Insta page asking should parking charges for SUVs be higher and at the moment 56% of people who voted so far say yes and 44% say no and I'm assuming that the 44% are the people who drive SUVs if you want to go to our Insta page on C103 to vote there please uh, feel free. Now I can just see a lovely message in about uh, John Bruton and of course we were on air yesterday when they, we heard the news of the death of John Bruton and all of the papers today have really given over a lot of column inches in remembering John uh, Bruton and he was seen as a man of integrity and a man of decency and of course, let's not forget, he set so many firsts when it comes to Irish politics and his political legacy reflects his deep interest in economic affairs. He was responsible for example, something I hadn't realised, for introducing self-assessment to the tax system and he also was responsible for the 12.5% corporation tax policy that we're riding high on, let's be honest in this country at the moment and that's contributed hugely to the country's economic success and that was introduced by his uh, government but then of course the contrast on the other side which I know one of our listeners mentioned yesterday, he'll never be forgotten that he was the Minister for Finance who tried to introduce that on children's shoes and there was uproar so much uproar of course that the government at the time it was a Fine Gael Labour coalition it was uh, uh, propped up by some independents um, that coalition government collapsed over the VAT on uh, shoes and I was listening to a piece yesterday that uh, one of the reasons with the VAT on shoes, on, on children's shoes, one of the reasons put forward as to why it was a good idea, though had there was and still is VAT on adult shoes, but there was never VAT on children's shoes, but it was pushed that women with small feet could get their shoes cheaper because they'd be able to buy children's, or they were able to buy children's shoes. And I don't know how, now there are some women have um, size two. My own daughter, Marcia, has the tiniest feet. She's only size two, so I also have to get children's shoes for her. But I just thought about a ludicrous reason to introduce VAT to stop the women women with small feet buying shoes uh, a little bit cheaper but it fell and and the government went down over that vat on children's shoes. I also remember uh, the late Greg Gay Byrne at the time I, I, he was presenting the Late Late Show and I remember the week where it was proposed he brought out he rolled out I think it was about six 12 uh, year olds and they were all different heights and sizes 
and they, you know, and they all, and because of their height, they were all different shoe sizes because, you know, generally speaking, shoe sizes is related to how tall uh, you are. And I remember he went down through the line asking them all their ages and I'm sure they were all 12 year olds and every one of the boys and girls that were standing in front of him all had a different uh, shoe size and they were just saying how ludicrous it was. Anyway, it was put to bed and the Vatican on, on children's shoes wasn't introduced and tributes, you know, have come in from all of the parties across all of the political uh, spectrum, uh, including there's a lovely piece uh, from his old sparring partner, uh, Fianna Fáil's Bertie O'Hearn. He's written um, an op piece for the, I think I saw it in the Irish Independent uh, today. And he says that John Bruton leaves a significant mark on the political landscape of Ireland, having implemented policies that shaped the trajectory of this country. He said beyond our borders, he had influence too on the international stage, especially as the EU ambassador who operated, he said, with such dignity and skill. But he said, above all, John Bruton was a decent man and a decent politician. He said, of course, we sparred across the Dáil chamber, but I always found him courteous and respectful to deal with. And uh, he said, well, they might have sparred in the doll. They all did often share a pint afterwards. And Bertie went on to extend his uh, uh, sympathies to his wife, Fanula, and the children and, of course, his brother, uh, Richard. And during his time as uh, Taoiseach, something we mentioned yesterday and something I don't think he gets a lot of credit for, he did launch the Anglo-Irish Framework document. And at the time, it was the Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister, John Major. Now, that prompted criticism of his willingness, of course, to accommodate unionist uh, demands. But that Anglo-Irish framework, that was the start of the Good Friday Agreement and that was the start of peace uh, in this country. He uh, survived for 10 years as leader of Fianna Gael and that was despite three votes of no confidence which was tabled against him. I don't know how many other political parties survived that many uh, no confidence motions, but he he stayed there. He continued to hold a Dáil seat up to 2004. Then he resigned in December of that year. And of course, that was uh, because he became the US ambassador to the United States. And at the Dublin EU summit, he helped finalise the Growth and Stability Pact. And that now governs the management of the single European uh, currency, the euro. He was very much involved in finalising that. He served as the leading member of for the convention that drafted the proposed European constitution. That was the Rome uh, Treaty that was signed in 2004. And uh, during his time in Washington, he was there from 2004 to 2009. He met with all of the US presidents, former presidents, and he'd one-to-one meetings with over 250 members of um, uh, Congress. And unlike other former Taoiseach, Uh, John Bruton uh, did not go quietly into retirement. He continued to make public statements, to write extensively about political and economic issues and you'd often see pieces in the paper written by uh, John uh, Bruton and of course as we heard yesterday he died peacefully in the Martyr Hospital in the early hours of yesterday morning. He had um, had a long illness and he was surrounded by his family. Michael in Castletown Bear said it was with deep sadness that he learned of the death of former Taoiseach uh, John Bruton yesterday and goes on to our deepest sympathies to his wife and family circle. Michael says, John was an outstanding politician. He was a politician who never received the credit he was entitled to. The Rainbow Coalition government of 94 to 97 that John Bruton led, according to Michael, he reckons it was one of the best governments that this country ever had. He said, I personally heard from all parties involved that John Bruton was the best chairman of any cabinet. 
that they were involved in. He played a major role, as we mentioned, in the in peace in the north. He led a long and distinguished political career and he was first elected to the Dáil at the tender age of 22, one of the youngest politicians ever. After leaving Leinster House, he was always available to anybody needing political help with John. He always had time to sit down. He always had time for a good common sense conversation, a truly a genuinely true gentleman. May he rest in peace. And that's from Michael in Castletown Bear. Thank you uh, for that, Michael. 0818 103 103. And can I just include one more text in this bunch? A WhatsApp in from a listener saying, Patricia, it's a beautiful morning for a walk. And it is. It's that lovely um, winter sunshine and blue sky. And, and it is lovely once you're wrapped up warm. It's lovely to be out and about. So that's exactly what this listener decided to do this morning. But says our listener. Our walk was destroyed this morning by the amount of dog fouling on the path. The whole way from Newmarket Town all the way past the boys' school and the whole way back to Cooley Bridge. It is a well-walked path and it is a fantastic walkway for all. It's an absolute disgrace in our beautiful town to have to navigate around all of this dog fouling. I have never ever seen it as bad as it is this morning. The sheer amount of it today would actually turn your stomach. Goodness me, you've described it uh, well. Please, God almighty, will we ever get to the day where we can stop talking about dog fouling and we can have responsible pet owners who would clean up after their dogs. 0818 103 103. Lines are open. C103 Jobs. And we start with Tria Oil. They're looking for a truck driver. Now, it's for multi-drop deliveries to domestic and commercial sites in the Clonakilty Bandon area. You can email careers at Tria, which is spelled T-R-I-A dot I-E, or phone Owen 087-7717035. A medical administrator slash receptionist is required for a busy GP practice in Newmarket. Previous experience in medical admin would be an advantage, although it's not essential. CVs to Elaine um, at athtrasnamc.com. Healthcare assistant with QQI and FETEC Level 5 in older persons is wanted for Nazareth House in Mallow. Experience in older person, palliative and dementia care would be an advantage. CVs please to HR dot mallow at nazarethcare.com and a childminder is wanted for a two-year-old and three school-going children in the Liscarrel area the school drop-offs and pickups will also be necessary 087 281 you'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more this is C103 Court today on C103 with McCarthy Insurance Group proud sponsors of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships want great advice? you know who to talk to cmig.ie this coming weekend, a public meeting is going to be held in Union Hall. It's over Cork County Council's plan to close off the old and historic Keelbeg Pier, which locals say is important for people to engage in leisure activities. A. O'Donnell of Save Our Pier Union Hall uh, joins me. Good morning to you, A. Good morning. Uh, you're, you're, you're welcome to the programme. I suppose we need to go back to last year. So go back to last year and tell me, how did local people find out that the council were planning to close off part of the pier? Um, we we didn't really. Uh, the first thing was a truck turned up on the pier with barriers uh, uh, to to close off the pier to restrict uh, access to the, the the pier. 
And that was the first indication you had? We uh, tried to engage with them to actually restore the old pier on a number of occasions. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, they, they wouldn't engage to do that. And the only thing they were talking about was to block it off. Now, and at the same time last year, the council said it needed to block the pier off. They were citing health and safety concerns. You accept that work needs to be done on the pier? Absolutely. Uh, and that's what we were pushing for, to, to restore uh, to restore the old pier to its former glory. And the council have said what? Too expensive? Uh, no, they said um, that they don't have the funds to do so. And do you believe it is a health and safety issue the, the way it is? There's definitely issues there that need to be addressed. There's no doubt about that. But they should address those issues rather than block it off. The worry is that if they do block it off, that um, we lose access forever. Yeah, the barriers will go up and, and that'll be it. There was also, if my memory serves me right, talk of an underwater survey, uh, which I think at the time they said it'd take about uh, 15 months uh, to complete. Are they close to completing that survey? Uh, to our knowledge, they haven't even started. Ah, oh, come on. That's, oh, that's really frustrating. OK, so for people outside of the area, A, can you outline why this uh, pier and its access is so important to local people and I imagine also to tourists who visit during the summertime? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I suppose to start, the pier was commissioned in 1885. So it's, it's been around a long time. Um, and although there was a, a fishing pier built approximately 30 years ago um, at, at the same location, uh, the old pier was used by the leisure, sailing, rowing, uh, canoe clubs in the area. Um, and by blocking it off, uh, it means all those activities are, are come to an end. And and I'm aghast to say it would just suddenly end. Did the council offer an alternative as to what people and where people could go? Uh, no, because there isn't an alternative. No, they could put a temporary floating pontoon in, yeah. to allow access to the water, uh, but uh, they, they, as far as we know, there's no plan to do so. And do they even agree to a pontoon? No. Oh, and what kind of backing do you have from local councillors? Uh, well, that's who we're meeting now this Saturday from uh, local councillors. They've all been invited. And so it would be interesting to see who turns up. Because last year there was, I remember, a, a council meeting. I mean, and last year, of course, you had the the, the local mayor was uh, from West Cork, uh, Danny Collins. You did have a lot of support, didn't you, last year? Uh, we did have a lot of support from the councillors, uh, but it's Cork County Council will be taking the decision. But the barriers, did the barriers go up? Uh, no. No, okay. But that was because local uh, people... Local people basically stood in front of the, the the workers and said, sorry. So the council just stopped? Yes. And nothing's happened since? And uh, No. And you've heard nothing? And we've heard nothing. God, it's, it seems crazy, doesn't it? It's, it's like you've been forgotten about, but, but yet... On the one hand, work has to be done. You're accepting there's a health and safety issue, but just closing it off. And and did you find out at the time um, a the council wanted to go in and close it off? And what was their long-term plan? There isn't any long-term plan. That's what the big problem is. 
our short-term plan, except it's blocked off. And just leave it there then? Yep. So leave uh, a pier that was built in 1885, leave it what, fall into the sea eventually? Eventually. But the, the, the challenge with that also is that that pier acts as a breakwater for the fishing boats. Yeah. And if that pier goes, that breakwater is gone, which then in turn means that you won't be able to hold uh, a fishing boat to the main pier uh, in any storm or any blow. So the, the fishing industry is going to get affected? Yes, absolutely. OK, so tell me what's the plan for uh, this Saturday? Obviously, we'll be pushing very hard to uh, local uh, councillors and government to uh, put funds in place to actually restore the old pier. And it- it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, and you've no idea on, on costing of what, what this would cost? Uh, no. No. You'd wonder, is there EU funding for something like this? Uh, there was uh, Bellamy funding uh, available out there, but Cork Council uh, did not apply for the restoration of the old paper under that funding. Okay, that's really what needs to happen. Okay, so are you, you've invited, obviously, all of the locally elected councillors. Uh, and government. And and the and the government TDs. Yes. Okay. And then our local people. Are you asking local people to come out and show their support? Uh, yes. Okay. So what time on on uh, Saturday? Eh? Uh, Ten o'clock. Ten o'clock Saturday morning. Okay. Listen, we wish you luck with it and uh, keep us posted much. on how it goes. And thank you for joining us. Uh, that is a, a, a O'Donnell of Save Our Pier in uh, Union Hall next Saturday at ten a.m. Uh, I mean, particularly important, I think, for local people, but also for people who who. Um, Visit the area in the summertime and get involved in leisure activities. 0818 103 103. Can I go back to the topic of uh, doctors and GPs? Because we were, we spoke about this uh, earlier this morning when I had Dr. Mark Daly on, who is a rural uh, GP. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we touched on was the fact that we lose doctors every year they go abroad. And, you know, he was... Um, 
Martin was pointing out he can understand why young doctors, you know, they want a good work-life balance and if they're getting better career choices abroad and their pay is better and their work-life balance is better, you can understand why they go abroad. Well, Billy in Formoy feels that any doctor that qualifies in this country and leaves this country and goes uh, abroad, they should be made ba- pay back for their education. All of those doctors should go on into hospitals and work and stay in the system until all the money for their education is paid back. And while Martin, Dr. Martin Daly didn't quite say that. He did touch on on the fact that, you know, what a waste it is to our education system if we're educating these young people and all we're doing is putting them on boats and planes. But the Irish Independent today actually have a survey looking at how much it costs to go to visit a GP uh, practice and they're showing that they're, and it's, oh, they've gone all over the country on this and they show that there's a significant gap in what patients are paying. Now this is for a standard GP visit and it depends on where you live and their special investigation shows there's a 50 euro price gap between the cheapest GP practice in the country and the most expensive. Now the most expensive GP appointments no surprise here are in Dublin City. There is a doctor's practice in Dublin City that's 80 euro to go. This is for a routine appointment with the GP. The cheapest they found was at a GP practice in County Monaghan where you can go see your doctor for 30 euro and I think it's a long time since most people got to see their doctor for 30 euro. Other less expensive places was a GP in Sligo. They charge 45. One GP in Kerry charges 40 and then there's a GP in Donegal who only charges 35 euro and of course we're interested in what we're paying here in Cork. No difference by the way between GP practices in Cork City or in Cork County. The average is between €50 and €70. The most expensive was uh, three GPs in a practice in the city. They charge 70 but I think the average for most GPs now is either 50 55 or uh, €60. But I think one thing that this current government will be remembered is the increase in the number of people who are eligible for for a free GP visit uh, card. It turns out now since the start of this year two and a half million people which is roughly half the population do not have to pay to visit their family doctor. So it means the other half the population are the private patients and they are the ones that are paying here in Cork between 50 and 70 euro. But what is still and I was hoping to ask Mark Daly uh, about it but I ran over on time. What is really astounding is that for 430,000 people became eligible for a free GP visit card. This is when they changed the income limits because, you know, a medical card and GP card are all means tested. So they changed it to median incomes and they reckon 430,000 people are entitled to a GP card. And I think the last time I checked, only about 16,000 people have applied for it. And I'm scratching my head as to why somebody wouldn't apply for a free GP card when they are entitled to it. We know that children up to the age of eight and everybody over 70, they all qualify automatically for a free GP uh, card. But it is the the public patients, uh, either the ones that have a medical card or a GP card, how their doctors are paid is they get what is an annual capitation fee. So every doctor, if you've got a free GP card or you've got a medical card, it means your doctor is guaranteed, regardless of how many visits the patient makes. 
that doctor is guaranteed a set amount every year. Now, there are also additional grants depending on the size of the practice, you know, to hire uh, hire things like um, practice nurses and, and practice man- managers. That's for the very bigger uh, GP uh, practices. But how much do they get every year? The annual fee that's given it works out at about €180. That's the standard fee that's given for a man or a woman aged between 45 and 65. So they get €180 per patient who's got a medical card or a GP card. Now, if the patient visits four times, that works out at €45 a visit. But they could end up visiting 10 times in the year, which will only work out at €18 a visit or... Maybe they won't go to the doctor at all. Some people are very healthy and hearty and don't need to see a doctor. So it does mean then that it's the private practice who pay this between 50 and 70 euro, euro, the private patients, they are the ones then that pay the rest to keep that surgery actually going. And then when you talk to GPs themselves, like they cite all the different expenses. I mean, outside of the consultation, outside of the time that they spend talking with their patients, they have all of the other costs of running a business. They've got rent, they've got utility, they have staff to pay, they have technology, they have general and professional uh, insurance. And unfortunately, all of those have been rising as a result of general inflation. I mean, you look at rent and mortgage payments, particularly in some parts of Dublin, you can understand why a lot of the GP surgeries in Dublin are paying uh, a lot more. But all of the doctor surgeries all over the country, they use a lot of energy. I mean, you know, their waiting rooms have to be heated. All of their surgery rooms have to be heated. They're constantly running machines and computers. So their electricity costs would have gone through the roof. So I think the question a lot of people who are private patients ask, are private patients actually subsidising the medical cards and the GP visit cards? Because many patients get very annoyed and this is people who have a GP visit or a medical card if they're asked to pay extra for blood tests, if they're asked to pay extra for the taxi to take the blood uh, tests. And some people depend, some surgeries, depending on the type of tests you're getting, are actually charging for the blood, the analysis of the blood tests. But let us never forget the important role that GPs play. I mean, GPs are the ones who will, you know, detect if you've got a lump or a bump that needs to be looked at. They're the ones that diagnose you if you've got high blood pressure, if you've got a problem with your cholesterol. You know, they're the ones that will spend time with you if you have a physical that you think is a physical ailment, but it may in turn turn out to be something that you're you're suffering with anxiety or depression. And they are the ones that take time uh, to work out what's going on in your life. And they're also the ones inevitably that will get you seen by a specialist. So the question then that's asked by a lot of people who commentate on the cost of going to the doctor versus the number of free GP cards that are available. Uh, Is there now a case that we should all have free GP care, that the government should provide free GP care for everyone and fund all of the GPs uh, correctly? 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. John Paul taking your calls. Cork Today on C103. With McCarthy Insurance Group, proud sponsor of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie A five-year project just completed in northwest Cork has resulted in a significant improvement in water quality in its rivers and it's thrown a major lifeline to the seriously endangered species such as the freshwater pearl mussel. To discuss the Dohalo Farming for Blue Dot Catchments uh, EIP programme, I'm joined by Michael O'Connor who is an agri-environment Environmental scientist uh, who worked on the uh, project. Good morning to you, Michael. 
Um, and you're very welcome. I suppose I, when this came across my desk yesterday, I had to do a bit of research because I didn't know what a blue dot catchment was. So I suppose start at the beginning and tell me what is a blue dot catchment? Yeah, so the a blue dot catchment, uh, it's a kind of a, a word for a high status objective catchment. So the catchment is the area of land that drains into a river. So under the Water Framework Directive, all uh, water bodies um, for EU member states must achieve satisfactory status um, by 2027. Uh, so that that's, we call that in Ireland, good status. Okay. So all water bodies have to get to good status, but there's a small number that have to get to a higher status. So these are the high status objective water bodies, and those are known as the blue dot catchments. So you represent a small number. There's 334 of them in the country. Right. Uh, and we're lucky enough to have a nice few of them up here in uh, in North Cork. Do, will we reach the good status by 2027 on all of our waters? It's a big task, you know. Yeah. It's not an easy, an, e- an easy answer um, because at the moment we have 52% of our water bodies in Ireland are achieving their status. So there's, a, there's still a, lot of, a long way to go. Um, That's but, kind of a shocking figure, isn't it? Half, only half. Yeah, and it's, you know, it, it hasn't been changing uh, at the pace it needs to, to get to there by 2027. So it's a, it is a tough task. But, you know, it is possible to make changes and that's something we've seen throughout yeah, the project. Yeah, and that's what this project really is, is uh, showcasing. Now, you obviously had to work very closely with farmers. So take me back and tell me, what did you ask farmers to do and was there good buy-in? Yeah, well, we had, we had very good buy-in and um, I suppose, like, you know, our project, it's, uh, I work for IRD Duhello. We're a rural development company in, in North Cork um, and South East Kerry. Uh, and I suppose, you know, for the past 40 years, we've been working very close with farmers in the area through various different schemes, through LEADER, through the Rural Social Scheme, um, through LIFE projects. Um, so even going back to 2010, we had our first major EU uh, LIFE project, which was um, an environmental project looking at uh, rivers. Uh, that was the Raptor Life Project. And we had another one after that, the Sam O'Kay Life. And after that, we had another two EAPs, including the one we're talking about now. So we've been in the area working with farmers for a long, long time. Uh, and I suppose that was key to, to bringing farmers on board was we already had an established um, relationship with farmers. With them, yeah. they, they trusted us. Um, and it was, you know, when you can get a, a number of farmers in that way, you can bring more in then through, through word of mouth. So what did, you ha- what did farmers need to do in order for you to achieve what you've achieved? So it was a hybrid results-based agri-environment scheme. So uh, if you, you know, a lot of people will be familiar now with acres. That's a results-based scheme as well. Yeah. Like, and uh, that that means that farmers get paid a higher payment for you know a higher quality habitat or whatever the measure it is that protects the environment. Okay. Um, so that was part, a big part of the project. Farmers got paid um, to protect you know things like wet grasslands, uh, to have vegetated drains, um, in-stream woody habitat. You know, all of these things that, that protect rivers, riparian, woodland. Um, and then the hybrid part of it, I suppose, was there was, you know, th- there was also an opportunity there for what we call additional proposed works. So those are capital actions uh, where farmers could come to us with an idea. You know, they could say, I, I think if I was to install this measure on my farm, it would make a big difference. And, you know, we would advise and we'd work together to come up with a solution. So we would then provide funding for things like water bars, which would take soiled water off a farm road before it can get to a a river or we might, you know, fund the planting of a hedgerow, these kind of things. We could we could provide funding to the farmers to do these things. OK, and, of course, and hedgerows are so important, aren't they? Very important, especially, yeah. you know, in those kind of 
catchments that have the heavy soils like we do have in the aloe catchment um, because what you're going to have there is is water not soaking down through the soil. It's going to, a lot of the water is going to pass over the land and that can carry with it phosphorus. So having measures like your hedgerows, you know, they slow down that water, they create better infiltration in the soil uh, and they can capture that phosphorus, provide a kind of a break in the mm. fields as well as all the other benefits, you know, uh, carbon sequestration and biodiversity and, and beautiful landscapes. Now, tell me, uh, talk to me a little bit about the improvement in water quality. What have you noticed since the, since you started the project? Yeah, so like from the beginning of the project to the end, um, we've seen four water bodies within the catchment improve in status. Um, so there are 17 for the purposes of monitoring. You know, we're on the rivers Allo, Dalu and Aonanair and some of their tributaries. But for the purposes of monitoring, those are further split up into different smaller catchments. So you'd have like Allo 10, Allo 20, Allo 30, you know. Mm. So we'd have 17 um, water bodies in the catchment. Uh, two of those were not monitored in the last monitoring period. So it's hard to know, you know, did they improve or not. But of the 15 that were monitored, four of them improved. Right. So three of them went from good up to the highest status and one went from poor up to moderate. So still has a little bit to go. But but getting there. Getting there, exactly, yeah. So that was a big thing, you know. um, Overall, you know, we're seeing a higher, a net increase, you know. We're seeing rivers go in the right direction within that catchment. Um, And like you mentioned, the freshwater pearl mussel there at the start. Um, So we've, you know, the aloe... the Allo 60, which is from Fremont down to, to Kenturk, that improved in status. And that's a very important stretch there for the freshwater pearl mussel and for many other sensitive species as well. So that's a very positive thing. Why is the freshwater pearl mussel? Because we hear it gets referenced every now and again. I, I know one, one of the startling things I know about it, they live to well over 100 years, which I think is, is incredible. Why are they so important? Well, I suppose that, you know, they're one of our most endangered species, so we don't want to see, to see them go. Um, but aside from that, um, you know, they're an indicator species. They tell us something about the ecosystem. So, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot there to protect the freshwater pearl mussel. And it's, you know, it's, it's not really just Will they only live, sorry, will they only live in, in good, clean water? Yeah, so ah. they will, exactly. Yeah, they, they require very, very high water quality, especially okay. the juveniles. Um, the... The adults freshwater pearl mussel probably could tolerate a bit of pollution, but you know to see recruitment of juveniles, to see them reproduce and and produce young, that's the real great challenge. Great, great, yeah. And actually, I, I see in in your, but they actually they can live up to one hundred and thirty years. Mm-hmm. They're incredible, aren't they? Or more, yeah, yeah. But but I suppose like you know talking about the freshwater pearl mussel, it's important to remember that you know we're not just trying to protect the freshwater pearl mussel we're trying to yeah. it's telling us something if we have freshwater pearl mussel in the river it's telling us that this is a great river for other things as well, well you know the salmon is an obvious one exactly the salmon as well would be pollution sensitive so if we want you know a salmon and what threatens the pearl mussel as well as like you know nutrient pollution of the water a big thing for them is sediment so when you have sediment coming in off the land that clogs up the spaces between the stones that the freshwater pearl mussel needs to survive especially the little tiny baby freshwater pearl mussels. And that, that habitat is also important for salmon to lay their eggs, for trout yeah. to lay their eggs, you know, for lots of other fish to lay their eggs and for the juveniles. When that gets smothered, you know, there's no oxygen for them and they die. Uh, the same with insects. You know, if you think about insects, a very, very important part of the aquatic food chain. You know, um, if, you do, if you kick over some stones and you had a nest, you'd see 
a huge amount of insects. You wouldn't believe what's underneath the stones in the river. But those are a really, really important part of the aquatic food chain as well. And those need, a lot of them need um, those spaces in between the stones. They need clear um, gravel beds to, to survive. OK, now um, this has been hugely successful, obviously, uh, for for the area. Is it now important that we learn from from this project and are there plans to replicate it in other parts of the county or, or indeed in other parts of the country? Yeah, so I suppose that is, that's a good point you made there that it's time to re- replicate it because, you know, it's great to see these improvements in one catchment, but in the end of the day, it's just one small catchment and we've got yeah. a big challenge ahead of us in Ireland. Um, so the idea of these EAP projects, they're called European Innovation Partnerships, is to trial innovation, is to create these demo farms, these these lessons that we can all learn from. And we do feed that back to policy. You know, we 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 feed that back to the department. It gets worked into new, bigger schemes. There's a couple of bigger schemes coming. There's a new Waters EAP. There's a Waters of Life project in the area as well. Um, but, you know, upscaling this project now, learning from the lessons yeah. is, is a very, very important part. And it can, you know, we're constantly um, trying to get the message out there for example, true today being on the radio, but you know, to give you another example, on Friday we will have some Dairy Gold um, graduate advisors coming to visit some of our demo farms, and you know they will take some of their lessons learned and they'll bring it back to their farms in in Cork that they're working on. Um, and in terms of a new project, it's early days yet, but you know we've we have had agri environment projects uh, for a long, long time, like I mentioned uh, in the area, and we are we are definitely looking into it and continuing to build on the great progress we've made with the with the farmers in the catchment. Because I, I, I saw in the, the piece from Sean O'Reardon in the paper, uh, 1.47 million was what it cost. In the scheme of things, it isn't a huge amount of money. No, I suppose, you know, for for the lessons learned and everything, for that can that can be fed back and the amount of people that have learned from it. Uh, and a lot of that money as well went back into, you know, the rural economy. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's all about. Listen, uh, Michael, it's an exciting project and uh, well done to everybody involved in IRD to Hollow, but Michael O'Connor, um, agri-environmental scientist. Thank you for joining us in the studio. The latest trolley watch figures in from the Irish Nurses and Midwives uh, Organisation uh, has said 150 people are waiting uh, for a bed in University Hospital Limerick today and that is making it the worst day of overcrowding in any hospital since trolley records began and they started doing the trolley watch back in 2006. The INMO said the overcrowding record has been broken three times in the space of two weeks at University Hospital Limerick. The previous record was 132 souls waiting for uh, a bed. That was hit again yesterday. It was also recorded on the 22nd of uh, January. Now, according to the HSC data, they're saying there's 103 people without a bed, but it's the way they count figures, people that are on trolleys and people that are in wards on a trolley waiting to go into a bed, but it comes in, at the, the figure comes in at 150. But looking at a breakdown, 32 Two of them have been waiting over 24 hours. Twelve of those waiting are over the age of 75. And 47 of the 103 are waiting in an emergency department and the other 56 are on a ward waiting, for, they're on a trolley on a ward waiting for uh, a bed. I mean, that's just shocking. 150 people. The total figure nationwide is 550 people. But UL breaking all kinds of records for all the wrong uh, reasons. And it, I kind of it pricked my attention when I heard Barry talk about it because there is a story making the front page of the Daily Mail today. You, know, you, you read a story in, in the newspapers and it kind of stops in your, in your tracks and you actually read over it again to say, did I really 
read that uh, correctly. And it's a story to do with security staff were called to move an elderly patient. Now, the elderly patient suffers from dementia and the security staff were asked to move the elderly man from his bed at 4am in the morning. And it was in scenes that were described as wrong, sickening and upsetting. And this is in Newell, which is the most overcrowded hospital in the country. In the incident, the man who's in his 80s, as I say, suffers from dementia. He was woken at 4am in the morning to be told, come on now, sir, get out of bed, you're being discharged. A decision was then taken by staff to call in security as the man became increasingly agitated. He became increasingly confused as to why he was being moved at that hour of the night. Security arrived on the ward, but in fairness to the security... They refused to remove the man, given the sensitivities involved and the level of distress that the security staff were witnessing. So I think kudos to the security staff here. Now, UL has since said there was a delay in securing an ambulance. So he obviously got discharged earlier. So there was a delay waiting for an ambulance to move the patient back from UL and back to the community setting where he had been uh, uh, living. But then they say that moving patients in the early hours of the morning is not our usual practice. But according to the Daily Mail, they've spoken to sources in the medical uh, profession about what they say. This is the medical profession. They're increasing concern at the practice of moving elderly patients back to a nursing home in the dead of the night when some of them are in a very confused state and some of them are moving back home where relatives mightn't even be available because I'm sure they're not ringing family members at 4am to say, you know, your dad is, is ready for discharge. We're bringing him home at 4am in the morning. Now, in this particular incident, the, the pensioner, who was a patient in the geriatric emergency medicine unit, refused to leave his bed because he felt, bless his heart, he felt he was too unwell. Now, UL has come out, a spokesperson for UL have come out and they've apologised for the incident and they give all the reasons that there wasn't ambulances available and then an ambulance became available and they decided to move him on and it isn't their usual usual uh, practice. But a source at University Hospital Limerick who works in the medical profession described feeling sick to his stomach at the scene he was witnessing. Imagine this elderly man, four o'clock. I mean, if anyone woke you up at four o'clock in the morning, let alone somebody who had been in hospital because he was unwell and bearing in mind that he's a dementia patient. So, you know, he can get confused as well. Just so frightening and horrible for that man and for his family then, I'm assuming to be told what happened to, you know, a much loved dad or granddad or or brother or maybe even wife. The source said, University Hospital Limerick is packed and the paramedics are back moving elderly and frail people out at 3, 4 and 5 in the morning. The call comes in earlier on in the day but because the paramedics are so busy the ambulance control holds on to those calls until all goes quiet which is usually around 4 in uh, the morning uh, and seemingly um, the, they, they say that last they confirmed that last weekend an elderly man refused to move out of his warm bed at 4 in the morning. Security were called uh, it was sickening uh, but in fairness to security, they refused to uh, get involved. And, you know, one other source says and accepts that the hospital is at breaking point, but says, and this is somebody who is in the medical profession, says we have to do better than this for our elderly. Another source speaking to the mail described how he and his colleagues in the ambulance service have, have actually voiced their concerns to management 
in hospitals as well as to the National Ambulance Service about this practice. So that's pointing to it's not just happening at University Hospital Limerick. The source from the Ambulance Service says there was a woman in the east of the country. I was bringing back to her home. It was half four in the morning and she was in a total daze. We started bringing her back we weren't bringing her back to her nursing home where she would have had care. We were discharging her to her own home. So we had to bring her back in the middle of the night and then just leave her there. We don't even know if there was anyone at home, if there was anybody there to mind her. But we were told, this is her address, drop her off. Isn't that just shocking? And I accept and understand that management of hospitals, you know, hate to hear. I mean, University Hospital Limerick, I imagine the management today are, you know, holding their heads in their hands and saying, God, what what can we do? 150 people are awaiting a bed and, you know, none of them like those kind of headlines and that they need to do something about it. So they look around the hospital, who's ready for discharge? And, you know, they try to clear people out of the beds as quickly as possible so that they can move up the, you know, the sicker people who were down in the accident and emergency department and get them into the bed so that they can be uh, looked after. But surely there comes a time if you don't have an ambulance after five, six o'clock, in the evening that an ambulance isn't available. Somebody's ready for discharge. No ambulance available until after, you know, whatever hour, four in the morning, that you say, well, we will leave it until the next day and start again. But like to, uh, to take somebody out of their bed at four in the morning, particularly a dementia patient, something very, very wrong uh, with that story. 0818103103. Can you keep your gardening questions coming in for Peter, please? Peter Dowder will be joining us in this hour of the programme. You can call John Paul or you can text or WhatsApp me to 0862 103103. Uh, Willie in Glanmire listening to the programme this morning wants to know uh, what does Waterford County Council look at what Waterford has done over the years and how well the council do it could we not learn from them he has to uh, he has to question Cork City and council when he sees how Waterford upgrade their road signage he says anytime he goes to Waterford City it's always spotlessly uh, clean he feels here in Cork City and County it's a come day go day uh, attitude and then he heard A. O'Donnell of the Save Our Peer in Union Hall talk about the county council haven't even applied for EU grants that could be available to do up the pier. What are they doing wrong? Well, I suppose on road conditions in Waterford, the argument would be they're a much smaller county and they don't have as many roads um, to look after as we do in Cork uh, Cork County. That certainly would be one of the examples as to the city and why the city is so clean versus Cork City. I don't know what the answer is there. Could we learn? Maybe it's just a, it's a smaller city. Have they more outdoor workers than the city has? I don't know. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero at three on GPs and the cost of going to the GP and I was doing the breakdown of what how much it costs you know GP in in a practice to run all of their overheads so it's not that they're making lots of money when we see the cost of going to the doctor increasing somebody says Trish my uncle is a GP his insurance alone for the year is over 100,000 and that's just one of the many many bills that a GP uh, has and then when we were talking about the environment and um, that lovely interview I had with that young uh, scientist Michael O'Connor talking about the amazing job that they've done in IRD Duhalla 
follow on this uh, farming for the blue dot catchments and it's you know you have to say besides obviously all the work that the environmental scientists are doing it but well done to the buy-in from all of the farmers who got involved uh, in this project. Listener says why are the media forever talking about farmers when Irish water are pumping raw sewage into the water courses in 28 locations around the country that's according to the EPA if a farmer was doing that they would get uh, jailed. Well listen I've often said on this programme in farmers are probably some of the best environmentalists uh, in this country and indeed in the world because they know the importance of looking after the environment and that's why if you can get your hands on this copy of this report from IRD on the Duhalla Farming for the Blue Dot Catchments you'll see the amazing work that farmers in that area has done be it to do with you know wet grasslands or hedgerows um, you know things like nutrient rich pathways you know they even deal with things like the dreaded um, Oh, Japanese knotwood, which is a huge, huge problem, the inv- in- invasive species and how farmers are trying to manage them. So I, w- I certainly would be bigging up farmers and the great work that they do for the environment, which ultimately leads to uh, cleaner water. 0818 103 103. Your gardening questions, please. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, making Cork County the place to live, work, visit and invest in. See CorkCoco.ie. Cara has have a monthly meeting in the Maryborough Hotel in Douglas tonight starting at 7.15. They want to reach out to any bereaved parent regardless of the age of your child or the circumstances of the death to please attend. No registration is required. Just arrive tonight with a kick-off at 7.15. The Glen Theatre and Bantir are welcoming East Nash Grass tonight at 8. Come along and enjoy Bluegrass Band from Nashville, Tennessee. Bookings on 029 56239. A public meeting to highlight the security and safety of the elderly and most vulnerable people in the neighbourhood will be held in Drumtariff Parish Hall tonight at 7.30. Garda Catherine Canty will attend to give guidance in the setting up of regular updates on criminal activities and scams. Everyone is encouraged to attend. And Mallow Adult Learning are offering advice for help with reading, writing, spelling and numeracy. You can contact them on 022 or call into their office on the top floor of the Mallow Parish Centre. And Carrigaline Alzheimer Cafe will be held in Carrigaline Family Supports Centre tomorrow afternoon between 3 and 5. This month, Hidden Hearing will give information on supports available for hearing well. To register, give Karen a call at 087 Court today on C103. With McCarthy Insurance Group, proud sponsors of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Now, last June, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, paid a visit to West Cork, and part of that trip, he went to Clonakilty Community Hospital, and it was to view a recently completed €5 million Euro extension that is to provide four extra dementia specific beds and 16 single rooms. But now, according to West Corkdall Deputy Michael Collins, 16 beds across two other units at the hospital are to close, with staff now worried that they may never reopen again. And Independent Dáil Deputy Michael Collins uh, joins me with just more on this story. Good morning to you, Michael. Morning, uh, Patricia. Now, the new extension, uh, it's called Silverwood. It has 20 beds, which include these four dementia-specific beds. Was it always the plan to close the 16 beds in the other units at the hospital? Or was the extension promised to be an extra 20 beds at Clannacilty Community Hospital? 
Well, to, to the people of uh, Clan Kilty and its surrounds, and to me as a public representative, we're under the assumption uh, that the opening of this new Silverbed unit, which ha- has to be a Silverwood unit, which has to be welcomed, of course, was meant to be an addition to the hospital. Not we we back in a situation where um, sixteen beds have been are being opened, but sixteen beds are being lost. No, the the thing is here, Patricia. Uh, from um, you know, and I'm speaking maybe on behalf of the staff of Glanikilty Hospital, excellent staff, and you know, have run a super hospital there down through the years. But their concerns are um, that they have been told that they will reopen again at some stage, but that there's there is inadequate staffing levels, and that's the reason they have to close so that they can open the new units. Now, the staff again are, like myself, delighted that there's a new unit opening, but they are all single bed units, so there's a lot of extra work. Uh, and it's, it's it's great for the hospital that they are in this situation. But there's a lot of extra work for staffing going in and out of new units plus four dementia units uh, compared to the two um, to the two units they had before that are closing. But the bottom line here is, Patricia, we cannot lose beds in West Cork. We need extra beds in West Cork. We've lost a nursing home not so far away in Belgooli in the last number of number of months, and now it looks to me as if we haven't had a gain here. And if if the HSE, and I've spent two weeks chasing the minister, I've spent two weeks chasing the HSE because I do want to be looking at a negative where there's a positive as well, Like, but I, I wanted to make sure that we had our story correct. And if they had come back, the minister, and said, OK, within two months we'll have the other beds up and running again, that's fine. But they haven't been able to clear that with SIP2, with the INMO, or with me that they will be reopening yeah. into new units again. And it looks to me as if we're going to be in a situation, Patricia, where you remember now this new unit has been talked about since 1998, yeah. finished in 2022, and opening now in 2024, and something else has been lost uh, on the way to... Well, it, way to it looks on paper like they have spent five million, which is to say, you know, uh, delighted to hear that they're investing in, in small hospitals, particularly a hospital like Clannock Hilton Community Hospital. But it looks like they spent this five million and there's only four additional beds. At the end of it, sadly, and and I mean, therefore, the minchibids, which are badly needed in West Cork, and I, I'm I'm delighted that this is opening. But the problem is, we haven't we're making no significant gain of any sort. I mean, we have to get clarity from, uh, and I don't think it's fair to ask the management of Donegal to ask you that clarity. Does clarity have to come from the HSE? Clarity has to come from the minister, uh, Minister Butler, who is unable to give clarity or does not want to give clarity. That that makes me more suspicious as to why. There's uh, two uh, units which contain 16 beds in Clannacilty Hospital going to be closed. And when, if they're if they are going to be opening in, when is that going to happen? And what? Well, we 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 reached out to the HSE and the the Cork Care Community Healthcare to ask them this, these specific questions: Are you closing 16 beds uh, in in Clannacilty Community uh, Hospital? And uh, they say there are no beds closing. But there will be some renovation works required in the Creana unit uh, before it can fully reopen for continuing care and respite care residents. And plans are also underway to admit from the waiting list to the vacant beds in the Ducas unit. So they're saying no bed closures. But yet you're hearing from staff that the opposite is true. Absolutely. And the staff have decided that they are going to work, uh, but they're working in protest uh, in the new units. Uh, Number one, they know they're overstretched and they feel that that's the danger. It's an, uh, it shows uh, staffing levels are totally inadequate. Number two, uh, also it's a danger for the residents in, in the hospital. This is what they have told me and they're the people that can talk. They're the people on the ground. Uh, and I have it firsthand from them. And as I said, I've spent two weeks chasing the HSE and the Minister for a straight-up answer. Why, if they're, if they're 
saying to, to you to, this morning, when they realise that we're going public on this, that the, these two units are closed temporarily. When are they reopening? How many beds are going to be there when they reopen? This is the question they should be answering, not kicking the can down the road, so that they can appease the, the media and then move on. And, and, and we find ourselves, you see what's happening with the mental health units in Bantry. It's put off, they reopened, it was meant to be open in January, now it's put off to June or July. There's you know, there's crisis in respite in community hospital. There's South Dock services is in crisis. There's lack of school dentists. There's home health crisis. There's a serious crisis within the HSE. And we're not getting straight answers. We're being... OK, being and, and, the road. and as they say in the press release, it's as and from today, the, the 7th, 16 existing residents from the Dukas and the Creaney units are being reallocated to the new, new Silverwood, Silverwood unit. And if they say there are no beds closing, have they hired additional staff for the new Silverwood unit? Do you no, know? No, and, and, and this is why there's uh, serious issues with the INMO and that they have not, number one, they have not hired additional staff. And number two, if they had, uh, these additional staff would have been kept in the units and the patients would have they'd been able to keep the other units open as well. So that basically the INMO are, are in great anger and frustration that there's not extra staff out to be taken on, even though there's extra rooms, number one. And, you know, and the sad thing is the INMO, like myself, they're absolutely thrilled that this new unit is open. Like, everybody should be welcoming that. But it's not at, at the cost of another two units closed. And uh, less staff are, are, are sorry, just working with the same amount of staff with more bids. It's not good enough for the staff. It's not good enough for the uh, the residents in there, Patricia. And is the rec- we're not getting straight answers here. We're getting is the re- is the recruitment freeze the problem? There is a re- the recruitment freeze is a problem. But you see, this hospital or the, this extension has been uh, built since 2022. Yeah, there wasn't a recruitment freeze issue since 2022. It was promised to the people in 1998. It's there since 2022. It's all been now 2024. But it's robbing Peter to pay Paul. Do, have you any understanding why it's the construction was completed two years ago? Why it's taken two years to open? It looked to me as if they, had, uh, they weren't uh, able to get the proper staffing levels. And now they're going ahead with opening it the way it is in that situation that they don't have the adequate staffing levels. And again, that comes from the INMO, not Mike Collins. But I, I mean, like they're 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 angered uh, by this fact, and and they've opened up public on this fact, and the hospital or the HSE, I'm not believing the hospital, but the HSE are not willing to answer questions and are not willing to adequately staff Clannacilty Hospital and bring it up. We, we it, it, You know, the, the amount of beds that's needed in, in, in a catchment area, Clannacilty, Timothy, Barry Rock, Gilbert and Bellascarty, Ross Garvey, and further afield, it means that just extra bids we need to be looking at here. You know, and there's a population, extra bids, of course, and so that people, because I'm, I'm every day of the week ringing the Clannock Hilti Hospital and other hospitals looking for bids that aren't there. Well, well listen, I'm, I'm, I was just a couple of minutes ago talking about, you know, a new overcrowding record. I know it's in, in University Hospital Limerick, but the amount of people that are on uh, beds and the reason for that is there are people ready for discharge, but they can't go back out into the community or they can't get a nursing home bed. So we know we need every single bed that we have and we need we need new beds. And last June, when Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, when he paid a visit and, and you know, was shown around Clonakilty Community Hospital to view this wonderful extension, um, Hikwa at the time, it was inspected by Hikwa. Um, and once the registration process is completed, which we now know uh, happened late last year, it brings the hospital overall bed capacity to 108. But is it, that's technically not correct because that 108 is less than 16, like moving the 
the deck chairs on the Titanic is what they seem to be doing today. Exactly, uh, Patricia, and the statement that you read out while ago is, is not clear. I mean, basically, are the beds that are being vacated and taking patients into the new Silverwood unit, are they going to be filled t- tomorrow? Is it next week? Is it a month? Is it six months? Is it 12 months? Or is it ever? And that's, the, that's what... OK, the, the well, well, they needed. say plans are underway to admit from the waiting list to the vacant beds in Ducas. Now, I don't know when 16 got moved. Was it eight from each unit? I don't have the breakdown of that detail. So, uh, but, let's see... The problem we, the problem we have there is that they the, the, the have to increase the staffing level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So where, how are they going to uh, have patients in Dukes that they haven't, are, are, are unable to increase the staffing levels? They're already an overstretch, according to the INMO. And as I said, they're uh, allowing uh, this transition to, uh, to the Abe, but in protest, they said. Because obviously they wanted to welcome this, of course, but they, they, they didn't want to find themselves overstretched further than what they are already. Okay. So like, uh, are you going like to bring we, it up? Can you bring it up with uh, with the Department of Health, Minister Donnelly? I, I, well, I'm, the problem I'm more is I'm, I'm, I'm bringing it up with the Minister of Health, Minister Butler. And I had that problem too with Ben Gouley coming back with very, I don't know, not very straight answers, Patricia. And this is the problem we have here. Like, this can is going to be kicked and kicked and kicked and I'm going to keep looking at it. And I certainly will be bringing it up with the Minister, you know, in the next couple of days. Today is the day, uh, you know, which, um, uh, in memory of, of, of John Bruton in the Dolls today, uh, and he's passing. But I, what I'm saying is that it's, it's going to be extremely difficult for us to get answers and it's getting more and more difficult. It's been two weeks before I broke this, because I, I was told about it two weeks ago, and the nurses told me the concerns they had inside that hospital, but I felt that it was only uh, out of respect towards management, and they, 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 I wanted an honest answer on the HSE, and I wouldn't get it. You're getting it this morning, but you're not getting a straight answer, but you're getting an answer at least. Okay, well, let's, let's see if we can get any, any update from uh, the staff who you were in contact with, particularly to see uh, are people immediately going to be moved from the vacant beds into the Ducas unit, which they're saying, how quickly with renovations go on in the Carina unit and how much renovations uh, is going to go on uh, there. But as you say, even if they do replace those 16 beds, where are the staff? Uh, Okay, all right. Listen, um, keep us in in the loop on this, uh, Michael, and thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Good morning to you. That is uh, West Cork Independent Adult Deputy Michael Collins with some good news that that new unit is opening but the downside is is it just moving patients around the hospital clinicality community hospital Court today on C103 and Peter Dowdle the irishgardener.com uh, joining us on what is a lovely sunny afternoon at the moment good afternoon to you Peter good afternoon Trish how are you I'm um, not too bad the weather is just changing so much it was you know we've, we had frost again this morning so you still have to be careful about frost tender plants don't you you really do. I, I, I don't know what day it was, but uh, I, I remember just, I, I'd done a, a few hours out in the garden. I said, I love this weather. I love these kind of early spring days where it's lovely and still and you can nearly preempt everything bursting into growth. And then the following day, I was, God, I hate this weather. <laughs> it's I raining know. on top of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, frost tender plants, you do need to still be careful. We're, we're certainly not out of the woods yet. I know there's there's huge headlines about the icy spells coming. That I don't know if we're going to get that down here or not, but um, we're, we're certainly not out of the woods in terms terms of low temperatures yet. No. Yeah, and in fairness, you did say that last week that February can often be one of those really tricky months if we think winter's behind us and then it, it's not. It can, it can be very cold. 
Yeah, and we we want it to be behind us, and we're kind of yeah. our, our positive thinking and our our optimism, you know, is, sends us out to the garden. We want things to get going quickly, but no, nature is nature, and we we do tend to get it go. I, I looked back actually and to check Storm Emma, you know, the beast from the east yeah. when it was, and it was from the it actually went into March. It it was the end of it. I can't remember the actual date. I think it was the twenty sixth of February to the fourth of March or wow. something like that. So yeah, it, it's quite it's quite late normally when we get our coldest snap. Okay, so yeah, because somebody is saying with the cold uh, spell, will it affect my daffodils? But they're hardy out, aren't they? Yeah, things that are supposed to be up kind of now, like your spring bulbs and spring plants and that, they, they've, they've, they'll all be fine with low temperatures and even minus 10s because that, that's natural for them. That's what should be happening. It, it's frost tender perennials or frost tender plants and things that, that wouldn't be used to those temperatures. That's what we need to be careful of. OK, Charlie and Whelan was on, still getting uh, calls in about storm damaged trees and uh, shrubs. He's got a variegated holly bush, storm damaged. But he said the leaves are still growing at the top but the damage is lower down. There's even some dead wood. He has a rope at the moment holding it up. Any advice? Hard to advise on that one, being honest, Patricia, without seeing it. So the fact that uh, there's leaves growing on top doesn't tell us much. Like even if it blew down in the recent storm, completely blew down in the recent storm, you know, it would be a while before all those leaves curled up and died. It could be a period of weeks or even months. So I wouldn't read too much into that yet. The fact that there's dead wood underneath, I would say is probably, well, from the sound of it, is unrelated to the storm. Um but if it, unless unless I'm wrong, and it's actually physically stuff that got pulled off at, uh, the, the, during the storm, um, and he's got a rope staking it up. It sounds like to me that he's doing the right thing because if it just blew over a bit and if it didn't come out of the ground fully, and if he's tied it back and he's staked it tightly and put a lot of more soil in around the root zone, then then it's a, he's doing the right thing there. If you like, whether it will survive or not, only time will tell. I'm afraid. Okay, hang in there, Charlie, who also has two conifer trees. They're about three feet in height and they're set 50 yards away from each other. One, just for no unknown reason, died and the other one is fine. Would you have any reason as to why one would survive and the other wouldn't? Charlie doesn't say, Patricia, or does he, how recently though they were planted? Does no, he? just that they're, about, they're yeah. about three feet high. Yeah, which leads yeah. me to think they're probably relatively new, relatively young plants. So... There's, I would say it's one of two reasons. So if they were planted like last year or within the last two years, then it's very possible just, you know, one of them is suffering from drought damage. One didn't get enough water when it was establishing uh, and the other one did. It could be very much as simple as that. Uh, and if they're new plants, I suspect that is the case. If they're established plants and if they're there kind of five years or more, well, then it's uh, it's more likely it's some pathogen in the ground. It's some kind of fungal infection like Phytophthora or something like that. He doesn't say which conifers they are, so I can't be exact. But um, uh, so if they're new plants, I'd say it was just one didn't get enough water. If they're established, it's 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 some pathogen in the ground and really not something you can police against, I'm afraid. It's just, it's again, part of nature. These things happen. Okay, um, Mary wants to move a rose uh, to a sunnier position. It's there about 12 years and there's a tree now starting to shade it. So she's trying to move it. When is the best time to do it and how? Okay, well, she's she's slapping in the, the right time to do it, really. Your window is, I would say, up until the end of this month. So sooner rather than later to move it. Um, roses have a kind of a long taproot system, so they can be quite deep rooted. So first of all, 
for two reasons. Number one, to protect your hands, but number two, to, to, to counteract any root damage. Cut the rose bush back very hard. Don't be scared about cutting it back too hard. It'll, it'll be very forgiving. It'll come back from that, no problem. So cut it back as hard as you want. Um, and then, which makes it obviously much easier to work with and much easier to get in towards the root system. So uh, take as much of that taproot system out as you is possible. Uh, uh, the good news is they'll transplant relatively easily. So you will have some fibrous roots coming and laterals coming off, off the big taproot system. Some of them will get damaged in the move. It's kind of unavoidable. Um, and that's why we're cutting back the growth over the ground to counteract that damage. Uh, move it into its new home. Uh, immediately in other words have the new hole ready for it or if you're putting it into a pot or a container have it ready for it so it's not out of the ground for any length of time um when you're planting it and this is important uh, you have what's called i'm assuming that the rose is grafted uh, most but not all of them are but most of them are and without without going too far into it if you look just above the root system at the bit over the ground, you should see a kind of swollen part of the stem, which is what we call the graft union. So it's very, very important that that graft union isn't buried, that it's above the ground, because if you bury it, what will happen is the graft will fail. And what will happen is you'll get loads and loads of suckering growth oh, yeah. and not the actual rose bush that you want, if you like. Yeah. So make sure that graft union is above the ground. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, take a picture of it, send it into us. We'll have a look at it uh, and, and try and uh, advise from there. And do you, dig down, uh, and then, do you dig down very far? Is the root system, you know, the fact that it's 12 years in the ground, would the root system be, be very deep? Well, it'll still be manageably deep, if you know okay. what I mean, even though it's 12 years in the ground. But I mean, you could expect certainly to be going down two feet with it, certainly. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, and then, and then into it and then keep it very well watered over this spring and summer. Nature will probably do it for the next couple of weeks. But uh, during the summer, it won't have repaired all the root damage that quickly. So you will have to pay attention to water it during the summer. All right. And the fact that Mary is moving it because it's got shaded by a tree, she obviously is not going to plant another rose mm-hmm. there because you can't plant a rose where Rose was originally. In the same place. In the same place. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah okay, exactly. Uh, stay with roses. Is it too late to cut back wild roses, says a listener, and also hydrangeas is now the time. No and no, and both, both of which I was doing in my own garden at the weekend. So no, you're, you're not too late for either. Cut them back up to the end of February, I would say, is, is perfect timing. Okay, Margaret has a kind of one of those unusual questions. She says, how come when you're passing fields and on the road, you don't see any moss in them? The grass always looks strong and healthy, yet most of our lawns are covered in moss. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> I suspect two things. I suspect if you go and look closely at the field, you could well see some moss underneath it. But the other, the other reason that you wouldn't see moss in farmed fields is... Uh, number one, because the grass is very often being turned over and ploughed, uh, which would, you know, soil that is being worked won't, moss can't colonise it, right? So in other words, it's, moss will only colonise soil that's not being, you know, dug over and stuff. But also when they're growing, when farmers are growing grass for 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 feed for cattle and stuff they would use they would apply a lot of lime now lime of course will increase the ph to make it more alkaline and moss won't grow in those conditions it's what i'm always saying when people are asking about moss in the lawn i would i don't recommend the use of sulfate of iron in these things because they actually end up lowering the ph of the soil and making it more acidic 
which is the perfect conditions for moss to come back. It's better to go the opposite and make the soil more alkaline under your lawn because then moss won't grow. So I suspect uh, I suspect it's either because the, the, the ground is being ploughed often or dug over often or they're applying lime. But I would say that's it. And it, it, an interesting question, certainly, Trish. Yeah, yeah. I, lots of people are trying to move roses, including Noel and Malancholic and wants to prune them. Yes, you can prune uh, your roses, uh, Noel. Now, is, is the right time? Is you, you, what, Didn't you say that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, okay, yeah. and then somebody says, hi, I grew two roses from slips last year. Well done. But I've since discovered that one of the slips is a climber. Is now the right time to move it, bearing in mind that I only planted it last year. Absolutely. Even as I was just saying, even if it was an established plant, now it's fine. So if the slip is in a pot, it doesn't matter anyway, because there won't be any root damage. But if it's if it's growing somewhere in the ground and you want to move it now, it's absolutely fine. Yeah. OK. And Donal in Cove is one of my favourite plants, a fuchsia bush. But he said it's all over the place. It's completely overgrown. When would be the right time to tackle it and, and cut it back? Everyone's getting busy in the garden yeah, at the moment, yeah, aren't they? Great. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's great. Um, so again, again with fuchsia, you can, you can. The, the, the technical term is hack, hack it back. So cut away to your heart's content. Uh, and now, again, anytime really up to the end of February is fine time to do that. Okay. No, it will look dead. It will look terrible, and it'll look dead, but it will regenerate quite quickly. Okay, we'll talk to you next Wednesday, Peter. Have a good week. Can I quick? Could I quickly mention one thing, you Trish? Can. I, it, just to, just to let you know that there's a snowdrop garden open day, oh. which I know will appeal to many because everybody loves snowdrops. It's for the Cuh Chan- charity. Uh, it's the 18th of February, and it's in Bright Park Cottage in Columny. Anyone who's familiar with DJ and them down in Bandon Garden Centre in Jared, uh, they'll have all the information. Um, so Bandon Garden Centre would be the people to get on to but it's the 18th of February a snowdrop garden and remind us of that again close to the time thank you for that Peter have a great week that's the irishgardener.com that's where I leave you for today thanks to John Paul McNamara and Nick Richard for the afternoon talk to you tomorrow at 10 today on C103 with McCarthy Insurance Group proud sponsors of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships for motor home business farm life and health insurance cmig.ie Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.